We want our children to have the best chance to live fulfilling lives. But can you keep up with all the books and scientific research on parenting and fit the information into your own philosophy on how to raise kids? Welcome to Your Parenting Mojo, the podcast that does the work for you by investigating and examining respectful, research-based parenting tools to help kids thrive. Now, welcome your host, Jen Lumenlon. started on today's episode, I just wanted to ask you a quick favor. I'd like to ask for your help in figuring out how I can best serve you in supporting your child's development and also making parenting just a little bit easier for you. I'd be so grateful if you complete a short survey for me. It'll probably take you about five minutes and it will really shape the kinds of things that I work on over the next few months as I bring you new tools that I hope will really make a difference in your family life. Don't worry, the podcast isn't going anywhere. I still love doing it, and I actually have more ideas for episodes than I've ever had right now, and I especially love it when I get emails from listeners saying what a difference it's made in their lives. But the survey is going to help me to develop even more cool stuff, so if you appreciate the science-based approach to parenting and child development that I provide, then you'll probably be interested in what I'm planning next. So there's a link to the survey at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash survey, just to make it easy to remember. And once again, that's yourparentingmojo.com forward slash survey. The survey is going to be open until midnight Pacific time on Tuesday, August 21st. So not very long. And after that time, I'm going to draw four email addresses from among the completed surveys. And I'll set up a 30 minute phone consult with each of those four people to help them address the most pressing parenting issue they're facing right now. So don't forget to put your email address at the end of the survey, which once again, you can find at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash survey. Thanks so much for your help. Here's today's episode. Welcome to today's episode of Your Parenting Mojo. This episode is part of our mini series on intergenerational relationships. We started out with our interview with Dr. Rebecca Fenergy on intergenerational trauma, but I also wanted to look at the beneficial effects of intergenerational relationships as well. I'm here today with Dr. Peter Whitehouse, who I think we should call Dr. Dr. Peter Whitehouse. He's an MD, PhD, and he's professor of neurology and either a former or current professor of psychiatry, psychology, cognitive science, neuroscience, bioethics, history, nursing, and organizational behavior at Case Western Reserve University. Dr. Whitehouse received his undergraduate degree from Brown University and his MD, PhD in psychology from the Johns Hopkins University. In 1999, he and his wife, Catherine, founded the Intergenerational School, a public multi-age community school. Welcome, Peter. Delighted to be here, Jen. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to get more into this topic. So let's kind of start deep into the weeds a little bit. You coined the term intergenerativity. Can you tell us what that means? So the preamble to that is in our school and in my career, we believe words and stories are important. Sometimes we need to think about words as to whether they outlive their usefulness. Sometimes new words perhaps need to be created. English is wonderful that way. Generativity comes from Eric Erickson, who talked about the stages of life in older adults. And he had his second to last stage, which was generativity versus stagnation. This idea that you can contribute ideas, actions in the world that are generative. That's a word that exists in the English language. All we did was put the prefix inter in front of it to signal that bringing together sources of generativity uh, creates an, an even more dynamic space. So intergenerational is one example of intergenerativity, bringing the generations together. But so is interdisciplinary and interprofessional and international. So it's a focus on connection. And it's time in the world, we believe, to highlight The value of diversity, whether it comes from differences in chronological age or many other wonderful things that make human beings diverse. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really important concept and one that has been undervalued, unfortunately, in psychology, particularly for a long time now. Yes, in our country, we're very focused on individuals and autonomy. Uh, Another way we sometimes talk about intergenerativity, which we did when the whole community kind of defined the word was going between to go beyond. So the idea that we really need to attend to our future together, particularly in this time of social injustice and um, global climate change. So intergenerativity is a word that asks us to be together 
now so that we can help future generations going forward. Mm, that sounds awesome. So I'm curious if you can sort of help us to put into terms something that we may have understood a little bit already about, but about the general attitude of middle-aged people, I guess you could call me middle-aged now, and young people towards the elderly in Western cultures. Because it seems to me as though elderly people really do hold vast stores of information about culture and community and values. But we in our culture put so much weight on what's new and exciting and happening now. And if there's any kind of problem, we don't care so much about what happened in the past. We just want a technological fix to the issue. So how does all this impact our relationship with older people? It is a problem that exists in lots of different uh, countries, but as we might talk about later on, different cultures have different historical attitudes towards older folks. In our Western civilization that focuses on speed and technology and money and ambition, the notion that taking the time to pause and reflect on how we got there and why we're going where we are really creates a space where older people can contribute to that. But yes, there are many divides. There's also an attitude which is characterized in the aging community called ageism. And those gerontologists in the world are a bit confused, in my opinion, because they keep saying, well, ageism is discrimination against people on the basis of age. But then they talk about elderism. So I think it's really important to recognize that in modern democracies and, and, and places where older people have power, that if we don't attend to the health of infants and the education of children, we're going to have a form of discrimination against our future. So society really has to find a balance where the, the rights and privileges and contributions of people across the lifespan are valued, and we don't stigmatize people on the basis of age. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. I've actually heard of the term childism as well, and mm -hmm. the idea that uh, children's contributions really are not valued in any way until they get to a certain age. And I'm not sure what the magical age is. Maybe it's 18 when they become legally able to do a lot of things, but we sort of hold them to a higher standard than we do ourselves. We require that they use manners when we don't necessarily all, always use manners ourselves because we assume they don't know how if they don't do it. <laughs> and we assume they're not capable of making decisions for themselves when a lot of the time with input from us and support from us, they are capable of deciding things for themselves. Absolutely. And that, that border zone in, in adolescence is where, depending on how somebody's developed, they may be able to make some decisions that uh, we wouldn't expect them to. On the other hand, they may need decisions and guidance. That's the challenge and the joy of parenting, to know where an individual youth that you meet with, where they are on that journey towards assuming their status as a citizen. And so you mentioned the importance of culture in all of this. And I think Japan particularly, but China as well, are sort of classically held up as examples of places where the wisdom of the elderly is really revered. And there's probably also a fairly strong filial piety issue at stake as well, particularly in China. But it's actually very common in many cultures around the world for the grandmother particularly to take on what we might think of in the West as a more motherly role. And when I was doing background reading for this episode, I read about the anthropologist Kristen Hawkes, and she studies the Hazda people in Tanzania. And she hypothesized that it's possible that this arrangement might have really deep evolutionary roots because the older woman is investing their energy and skills in rearing their grandchildren. And firstly, that makes the grandchild like more likely to survive. And secondly, it frees up the mother to get pregnant again, which further uh, helps the genetic lineage. And so I'm wondering, do you see a lot of useful ideas in how people in other cultures interact with the elderly generally, and specifically with grandparents in particular, that we might be able to learn from? Yes. In our country, the United States, we should look to people of Hispanic backgrounds because the Mediterranean cultures have a stronger extended family uh, network than the no more Northern Europeans. But certainly if you go to Japan and to uh, China and India, the notion of respect for elders is much more ingrained in the culture. That said, and by the way, our first partner school with our intergenerational schools in Cleveland was in Tokyo, uh, Japan. And we're now working on programs in India. So we have a lot to learn from those cultures, but a certain amounts of the same trends have affected them. Urbanization, the fact that more people now live in cities, means that the nuclear family, the young family, moves to the city, leaving the, uh, the older folks in the countryside. Women working, valuable in its own right, but also challenges family dynamics. 
I would say to you that I believe what you said about the anthropological studies and that for once we can generalize from existing cultures to perhaps the past. In our hunter-gatherer phase, I believe that elders, because people still lived a long time, the life expectancy was lower, but we still had elders. The grandmothers who often get the attention can help child raising. But just think for a moment as a grandfather, which I am, who has lived and seen seasonal fluctuations, temperature variation that's affected the hunting grounds or where the food sources can be gotten. So I clearly imagine a state where in those days, older people's experience with life, if not wisdom, contributed uh, enormously to the success of the family and tribal unit. Yeah. And so from a tribal perspective, I can totally see how it makes sense. From a modern family perspective, I'm wondering what specific things you think that younger people, maybe even the parents themselves, but certainly the grandchildren, what do they gain from these relationships with older people? So what I sometimes jokingly say about the children in our intergenerational school is that we're trying to make them old faster. (laughs) You laugh. Of course, what I really mean by that is mature faster. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you, for example, a story I tell all the time, we have volunteers, we have elders in our school that have been activists marched with Martin Luther King, Mm. uh, saved our nature center from a corrupt politician destroying it. And so these kids, by listening to the life stories of elders, particularly when they're told by people that the kids have built a relationship with, not just a one-off kind of uh, go to the library, not that that's a bad thing and listen to somebody talk. When you've got a relationship and you trust people and you share stories together, then I think those kids get life experiences that they themselves have lived through the eyes of others. And that's valuable, even if they weren't there at the actual time. I often say in our school, the kids see the past through the eyes of the elders, and the elders can imagine the future through the eyes of the kids, a future that those elders are less likely to see than the kids. Mm-hmm. And then they get scared, <laughs> the elders, <laughs> by what's coming in the future. Well, now, I'm not sure what you mean by that. You mean they're, they're, they're scared of the kids taking no. over or they're scared of what the elders, the adults have done to the world. Yeah, yeah. That's where I think the concern yeah. should be. We really need to focus, as I said before, on educating kids because we have created a mess with a whole bunch of complicated issues. Mm-hmm. So we owe it to our kids to make sure they're as educated as we can make them be. And I think intergenerational education, which gives people a sense of time and a sense of responsibility, is one way to do it. Yeah. And so you've mentioned the school and I want to talk about the school, but just before we go there, you mentioned the idea of looking to Hispanic families as a a potential model of intergenerational relationships. And I firstly just want to comment on the irony of that and how in psychology it often seems as though the white middle-class family is seen as the epitome of what a family should look like. And that if other types of families would just try and be a bit more like white middle-class families, then their children would be more successful in school and have better life outcomes. And you're kind of flipping that paradigm on its head there, which I think is awesome. And secondly, I'm wondering if you can point to some specifics about what happens in Hispanic families that that you find could be potentially beneficial to middle-class white families or other families in general. Well, I won't apologize for plugging our school. I'll keep doing it if I get to that. <laughs> one of our three schools in Cleveland has a larger Hispanic population. It's one that I don't actually have much direct experience with. But so let me just generalize in what kids may get from that that circumstance. When kids have a good relationship with elders in their own family, they are more open to, or even, even if it's not a good relationship, at least experiences, to relationships with adults and elders in society at large. I believe that our kids are able to be less intimidated, more knowledgeable about issues like If it's an older person with a hearing problem, how to adapt to that. So I think the family experience gives you that. I also think as a grandparent myself, and I will mention that a few times more, I suppose, that the step backwards from parenting allows the kids to talk to elders in the family in ways that are not as directly tied to the challenges in the parenting relationship. I'm probably being a bit long-winded about it, but but the idea that if it works well, the elders can be the, the sources of counsel 
removed from that direct disciplinary uh, role that, that parents have. So it's sort of, I think about the relationship between students and teachers and the idea that it's very hard to have a really open relationship with somebody who's evaluating you, which is typically the role that a teacher has. <laughs> and so in a way, you know, it's not like the parents necessarily evaluating you, but they are trying to impart certain goals to you and bring you up in a certain way. And and the grandparent is sort of removed from that process, right? They have a stake in it, but it's not all on them. And so that frees them up to have a different kind of relationship with the child. Absolutely. And in my university life, I work with how universities adapt to the opportunities of aging, including the fact that most universities have a lot of older faculty, Mm -hmm. which is a bit of a challenge for them. So, for example, our place and my alma mater's Hopkins have emeritus organizations. So I think that for emeritus faculty to have engaged kids, perhaps not in the classroom where there is that evaluation, but in other circumstances like common readings. And the other thing I joke all the time about is, and I think every older faculty member could do well by having a younger person who advises them. Because in the technology domain, it's comical sometimes to see the differences (laughs) between professors and kids. Kids, I'm calling them, you know, the freshmen who come in. So I, I think a mentoring, an intergenerational mentoring relationship outside of formal evaluation can be valuable both ways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's not just a one way thing. It's the younger person has something valuable to contribute to this relationship. Right. So, okay, let's talk about the schools. (laughs) So you and your wife, Kathy Whitehouse, founded the Intergenerational School, and it sounds as though it's expanded since then. I wonder if you can tell us a bit about the underlying principle of the school and who attends their schools, and what does it look like if I walk into the building? How is it different from a typical school? So we started with a single public charter school. So it's a public school, but part of the attempt to innovate a public education by allowing some restrictions from the regular public school rules, although we have a lot of them and we are required to have our students take the test. That is to say the students who are aged K through eight. Now, we don't put children in in grades. We don't assign them by chronological age or grade to a classroom. So it's developmental. So that's the first thing. It's developmentally appropriate learning. And it's learning in community. And of course, that directly translates to older adults because older adults may be in different places in their learning. And so the idea that you don't put an older adult in a classroom because they're 64 or 62 or whatever, it's just, I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. So the lifelong learning developmental perspective permeates the pedagogy of the school. Also, we believe firmly in getting kids out of the classroom. So you might go to our school to answer that part of your question and see kids leaving on a field trip or kids playing on our intergenerational playground or kids in our intergenerational garden. If you go in the school, what you'll see is in the school that I'm referring to our first school, but in all of them, are spaces carved out for one-on-one conversations. So let let me be clear that the older adults do not go into the classroom, sit in little chairs and listen to the same lessons that the teacher might be offering to the students. The older adult volunteers, and they're adults of varying age, work with one class and one teacher and kids on an individual basis. So our signature program is reading mentoring, where a child will come out of the classroom, work with an older adult that they know well, and either read to or be read to or tell a story from their lives or listen to a story from the adult's life. So this is narrative, experiential, often service learning, service to community education. Wow, that's fascinating. And so (laughs) my mind immediately goes to the benefits of one-on-one learning and the idea that, well, it's too expensive. We could never give every child one-on-one learning. And that's why we need to use computers to personalize learning. Well, actually, we have an (laughs) entire ready and waiting workforce with a ton of experience who can help us to personalize learning to children's needs. You are hired. (laughs) Uh, That's well put. Thank you. I'll be your new marketing team. (laughs) So you mentioned something that immediately caught my ear. You said intergenerational playground. What does that look like? So we've had two actually at our two locations. What it looks like is kind of universal design. So you, you want to design the spaces that allow kids to play with equipment that is their their size, uh, places for adults to sit and interact, and spaces for uh, 
private conversations, uh, walking spaces, of course, um, uh, disability-appropriate design. I'll say one thing. I was part of the design charrette, and one thing I kept telling them is we are actually in front of the, the schools in an old hospital right in front of the ionic columns, which are part of the, the structure, and a, a wonderful clock tower. So I actually wanted the playground to try to focus on this sense of time. And I wanted <laughs> to have a walk that people could take where they would move through in a deep time sense the history of our universe. But basically, it's a safe, universal design place to allow social interactions the way that most playgrounds aren't mm. between the generations. Yeah. That's really interesting. And so what I'm also curious about is the academic outcomes of the children who go through your school. Do you see any uh, benefits in the academic area as well as potentially any shifts in their attitudes towards elderly people? So we have to take the standard state tests, which are a ridiculous game in my opinion, (laughs) but we are a public school. Uh Our kids do well on those tests. So that's one measure. I would say more fundamentally, our our kids have a very high attendance and there are even stories of kids that don't want to go take a vacation. We have a high percentage of parents who uh, participate in parent-teacher conferences. So these are schools where parents and teachers want to come and are engaged. The mission of our school includes lifelong learning, as I mentioned, and spirited citizenship. So I used to think that the ultimate measure of our school would be how actively are children engaged in the political process? Mm. Because I think you prefaced your question to me by saying, you know, what's the purpose of schools? Well, the purpose for schools increasingly in today's uh, context is to get educated, to have a job. Mm -hmm. It's the economic model. It's the neoliberal model. But I think that's a very distorted model. I think we need to recognize that schools are much more about creating people who want to be fully active citizens in society. We don't have those measures from our kids. We do have another measure which is important, and that is our kids who graduate from our elementary school do go to high-performing, innovative, next-level education, high schools, and so on. So evaluating a school is got many, many components to it. And unfortunately, in society in general, we tend to focus on things that are more easily measurable, but less important. Yeah, for sure. I agree. And then, of course, I assume there are impacts on the elderly people as well. As I was reading through the literature on this, it it seemed as though a lot of the studies in the space are really qualitative, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but they don't have great methodologies. And so a typical statement in one of the papers I read is this program was regarded as an overwhelming success by both the retirement village and the school involved. By all accounts, the success of the program exceeded the expectations of the staff, which is hardly a statistically rigorous assessment of the program's results. So... What do you think about the way we study the benefits for the elderly people and whether there have been benefits for the elderly people? So I think this is a a challenging area when we're trying to be innovative, when we're trying to address wicked social problems. What evidence do we need that some approaches are better than others? Mm. I'm going to tell you that a PhD in medical anthropology was granted by Oxford University to Danny George, who was our intergenerational coordinator, and with my help, designed a randomized control study with both quantitative and qualitative aspects to evaluate whether older adults with memory problems, with dementia, benefited from working with our kids in the school. We had a control group the people were randomly assigned to that who stayed in the long-term care facility and did a peer group intervention. And the uh, quantitative piece demonstrated lower stress in the older adults who came to the school and a tendency towards cognitive improvement, a trend. It was a small study. I have done dozens of randomized control studies as, in my career as a physician, and this would not pass the highest standard of evidence for reasons that I could go into. But some of them are, you know, are challenging when you're dealing with older people and kids. I'll tell you one little joke. So if we were to do the study carefully, we should have put everybody on a bus 
the older people who came to the school came on a bus. The older people who stayed in the nursing home stayed in the nursing home and didn't ride in a bus. And then I said, if we were going to do a better study, we'd have the people in the nursing home ride in the bus in exactly the same route that the people who went to the school did, but just not stop at the school. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I said, because who knows what went on in the bus? <laughs> I, I, t- I told this story a few times and somebody said, you wouldn't believe what went on the bus. <laughs> on, on, the way, on the way back from the intervention, we talked about the kids and what happened. And so the bus was actually part of the intervention. Yeah. So you see what I'm saying? It's very easy to do a study when you've got two equally appearing pills, one of which is a placebo and one of which is an active drug. When you're talking about complicated social interventions that deal with older people with cognitive impairment and kids, which raise issues of ethics review that need to be taken care of and so on, it's very complicated. Mm-hmm. The, but ours was a qualitative, the qualitative as well, so we collected stories. And interestingly, the stories reflected the lower stress, the enhanced quality of life. And that's the measure that I study in my medical career because that's what we really want to do. We want to have everybody have an experience that improves thinking, lower stress, but basically, you know, the experiences that people want to have over again. It's almost impossible to measure the thing that we actually want to be able to measure. <laughs> and in some ways, we just sort of need to accept that it's probably happening and worry less about if the difference is statistically significant or not. I think we have to be smarter about this because if you know, since you're science-based, how much problem science has had with replicability. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the pharmaceutical industry... The joke, and it's not a joke. I mean, I work with the British Medical Journal, the Cochrane Collaboration, and other credible sources. They'll do five studies, and they'll popularize the two that were positive. Yeah. And they will distort what randomized control studies really say. So randomized control studies are the gold standard because only people that have gold can afford to do them. And then when they do them, that's a joke. And when they do them, I they can, uh, I mean, actually, it's not a joke if you want to look at yeah. the, the other level. It's just a huge <laughs> irony. Yep. So I think, yes, we have to be systematic. We have to consider what we take as evidence. But if we just thought that a randomized control study was what I have to do would get us the answers, we'd be sunk. Mm-hmm. Let me give you one last example. There's a study in an epidemiological study that says having a strong purpose in life. In Japan, they call it ikigai, is important. If you have a good purpose in life, a strong purpose in life, you get less Alzheimer's. Well, that's a case control study. And who knows, maybe people that have a strong purpose in life, you know, eat more beans or have a better job or have a better family relationship. So I I joke with the audiences. I say, okay, we're going to do a randomized control study. You're all going to volunteer and half of you are going to be randomized to a condition where you're not allowed to have a purpose in life. (laughs) Uh It makes your point, right? Yeah, things that are are really important in life tend to get lost when you are trying to measure them. And if you can't measure them, the randomized control people say, we don't have a number that we can get our jollies over. Yeah, yeah. And the replicability crisis is uh, definitely not limited to the medical profession as well. We're seeing it loud and clear in, in psychology as well. And we covered that a bit in the issue on the episode on growth mindset where we talked about the fact that there's studies, the the beginning studies have never been replicated. So definitely familiar with that issue. So moving on a little bit in shifting gears, I think a lot of parents who are listening to the show are pretty conscious about how they discuss the issue of race and they deliberately make an effort to discuss race in a positive way. And they sort of attempt to counteract bias, but I'm kind of willing to bet, and I'm willing to count myself in this group, that most parents are not nearly so intentional about the ways they describe old people and about how they talk about not wanting to get old, and maybe even the ways they joke about it. And I actually just started getting AARP membership cards in the mail. And so I joked about that in our house recently, although my four-year-old did not ask me what AARP was, so I'm not sure if she got it. But I'm curious as to what effect our comments about these kinds of jokes and and things that we just kind of say in our lives without even really thinking about it have on the way children perceive aging and elderly people? This is an important topic. Uh, I already raised the issue of ageism. Our society is an age, death to dying society. We spend tens of billions of dollars on wrinkle creams and this and that uh, (laughs) to appear younger. I think there's nothing more horrible 
than an older person who looks like they're working wearing a mask and they can't give you any facial expression because they've had all their wrinkles botoxed to death. So yes, I think there's a great danger that the current generation of parents don't adequately realize how much they're conditioning their kids to think in that way. It's funny though, because in many ways, when I say that, I think to myself, well, look, older people, what, what's a family for heaven's sakes? A family is an intergenerational unit. So why is it that we have to bring out attention to aging in a way that you might imagine it's more natural? I mean, it's not likely that these older adults, the parents, make too many ageist comments about their own parents, although it's possible. And that gets us into the issue of humor. I think you can overdo that too. I mean, I think everybody who's, you know, says some joke about a senior moment. I mean, I would say you were bordering on that when you were talking about your four-year-old not knowing what ARP, mm-hmm. just call it ARP. She might not like that better than AARP. <laughs> Mommy's a member of ARP. Oh, uh-huh. ARP, ARP, ARP. Anyway, but anyway, I'm not going to give you parenting advice. <laughs> but the point is, I think if we had a healthier attitude about it, we could probably joke about it more. But people are so sensitive to ageism that you're not allowed to crack any joke about mm-hmm. being old. And look, humor is such an important part of life. And there is another fundamental issue that that ageism relates to. We are all going to die. All those anti-aging people aside who think we're going to live forever. We've done a remarkable job at extending life expectancy over the last, you know, 100 years. But the fact is there are limits. And I think there's something that, for example, most parents probably do not have enough conversations with their kids about death. And yet, having older people around is an opportunity to have deep conversations about what it means to be a human being so that you actually can be as vital as possible while you're alive in a way that is not defying the end point. So I do agree with you. I think this is a hugely important topic, conversation to have. But I think it gets back to parents and their relationship to their own aging and their own mortality. And that that gets back, you know, to our dominant cultural anxieties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we actually in our house, we talk about death quite a lot, <laughs> not through any kind of design, but I did an episode on how to talk with children about death. And I typically recommend that someone listens to it. If somebody posts in a Facebook group saying somebody has died and I need to explain it to my four-year-old, then I'll say, here's something that could help. But also just listening to it in advance and being able to talk about an insect that has died or the pet rabbit or whatever it is in a way that doesn't have to be anxiety provoking, I think can be really powerful. And I find that my daughter actually talks about death in a way that she's she's not afraid of it at all. We were walking home from getting off the bus a few days ago and she just said, mama, when I die, I want to be digged in a hole next to you. <laughs> I said, wow. I, well, I didn't actually say, I don't, I'm not sure I want to be digged in a hole, but, <laughs> but I just thought it was awesome that she can think about that perspective and not have any fear about it whatsoever. Well, I sometimes say that Plato and Buddha agreed on one thing, because Plato on his deathbed said to his uh, disciples, his last advice was practice dying. But the fact (laughs) is that death is a part of life. And I think both those, the Greek and the Oriental traditions tell us that if you don't embrace mortality, you don't live as full a life as you could. Mm. And I think pets and, um, and opportunities to, to talk about it are important opportunities to take advantage of. Yeah. So getting into this issue about relationships between children and older people, kind of as they experience them on a daily basis, we've talked on the show before about how social groups form and how people perceive people who are in the same social group as they are and how they perceive people in a different social group. And those are usually in a more negative light than the people who are in their own group. And I think if a person feels uncomfortable being around people in the other group, then they might avoid interactions with those people. And that reduces the opportunity for children and really people generally to reduce their biases and misconceptions they have about the people in the other group. And so I'm curious about whether you see this pattern at play with children's relationships with older people. Because I'm just thinking about 
kind of anecdotally, when I was four or five going to visit my uh, great grandmother, who was, she was 107 when she died. So she probably would have been over a hundred when I met her. And I remember just being absolutely terrified of her. And I sort of see the same thing in my daughter when she interacts with our elderly neighbors, she just kind of buries her head in my neck and, and won't really speak to them. And is it because she's not having enough interactions with them, do you think, or is there something else at play? Again, you're identifying huge issues. I mean, I already mentioned the notion of intergenerativity, which celebrates differences and the importance of diversity. Our natural environment, our social environment depends on diversity for uh, kind of creative energy. But on the other hand, there's fear and there's discrimination, there's tribalism. So this this tension we all feel in life about the security of the same and the danger of difference. Boy, write that one down. I like that. <laughs> the, the security of same and the dangerous difference. You can turn that around, and I'm not going to try to do that alliteratively. And I think this is going to be a critical issue for the world because immigration is going to continue. And, and the tensions around societies that are going to face an influx uh, under very different circumstances, many of which will be driven by social injustice and climate change. So dealing with how we create and recreate communities. Ultimately, though, that I think it does depend on a sense of security. So your children, my grandchildren, my children need to have experiences with diversity where they themselves feel safe. If you are uh, somebody who feels very insecure about your own social position or economic position, I mean, we're seeing this in the U.S. and other places, then in that space of insecurity and fear, you're not going to be able to reach out and have that positive experience with diversity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and diversity of all types, age and race and all of other kinds as well. Yeah. So there have been interventions designed to try and reduce children's bias towards the elderly. And we've covered in this show a series of interventions designed to reduce racial bias as well. And they typically are not very successful. Some of them have the unhappy effect of increasing racial bias in children, which counters the aim of the entire study. So I'm curious about whether and how we can know if our attempts to shift children's attitudes towards aging and elderly people really do achieve their goal or is it just that children learn that making jokes about being old is not cool? In general, exposure experience with people of different ages, positive. I agree with you that it can go both ways, but our mentors get training on how to deal with kids and our kids get education on dealing with elders. So they go in with some preparation. I'll tell you one anecdote. By the way, I have a new uh, phrase. Uh, the anecdote is the antidote, meaning that the powerful story will uh, overtake anybody's data set, regardless of how big it is. <laughs> I'm showing my biases here. And that is when we took our eighth grade people who were just about to graduate from our school, let's say about um, 15, up to Toronto to visit uh, some of my intergenerational collaborators in Toronto. They went to a, a long-term care facility where there were a lot of people from Eastern Europe. And the kids, I, you could watch them, that they didn't hesitate to engage these elders who were different, although there are a lot of elders from Eastern Europe and Cleveland, they were quite different, a different population. And the elders said, these kids were remarkable at how, I was going to say graceful, if you can think of a kid being graceful, mm-hmm. how just easy it was for them to start conversations and to do things that would have otherwise required a lot of warm up. And frankly, you just need to cross that bridge because mm. once you get comfortable and you get some experience with different people, you kind of learn, well, there are people who are you're going to talk to that you're not going to have a, a good conversation even with or a relationship with others that you are. So it's the courage based on positive experiences that we can construct that then will allow kids to say, I'm going to take the risk and have that conversation with that older person. But if you don't have that experience in the first part place and the parents and others are nervous about it, then the kids are going to pick up on that right away and they're going to be biased against having a good experience and towards having a bad one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
And so as we sort of bring this back to people's families, I think in an ideal world, if children were around elderly people a lot, they would actually have a lot of these meaningful interactions. But I did find a study out of Israel that found that great-grandfathers who lived with their children or very close to their children had essentially very few verbal interactions or shared activities with their great-grandchildren, even if they met every day. And so not everybody is living with or close to (laughs) great-grandparents. But I imagine a similar age issue could come into play where both generations waited until relatively late to have children. And so I'm curious about ways that families can encourage these relationships where they might be made more difficult by geographical distance or financial insecurity or physical illness or just a really big gap between the generations. I'd like to look at that study because I think the context is really important. The first thing I think about if it's a great grandparent is hearing loss is a huge issue with older people and hearing loss can be isolating uh, between uh, older adults and adults, let alone kids. So just having kids learn that in communicating with older folks, you have to take your time for various reasons. There may be memory problems as well. I mean, who knows? So I think, again, as I said before, preparation is a good thing. The issue of are there is there too big an age gap I don't know. I mean, to me, as I said, our signature program is reading mentoring. Our people with dementia read to kids or share stories from the long-term memory. I think, actually, I'm working on this idea. I think we need a genre of one of my colleagues calls big picture, big person, little person books. And I'll give you an example uh, Dream by the group in Canada that I mentioned earlier, The Legacy Project, which is designed as a picture book to foster intergenerational conversations in a way that's accessible to older and younger readers. So I think that kind of explicit strategy to have that great grandparent given as a gift, a book that is in, was intentionally designed to have that grandparent share that book with that child. Or, or maybe you give them each a gift. I'm just making this up on the fly for Hanukkah. And, and they say, hey, I got this gift. It says it here. Uh, I'm supposed to read it to you and vice versa. I mean, I, I don't know. But it seems to me that we don't tend to think about intergenerativity, you know, creating ways that we can foster it. We just kind of assume it's going to happen. Mm. And if it doesn't happen, then, you know, somehow it's disappointing and it gets a spiral downward rather than a spiral upward. Mm-hmm. So we need to be more intentional. If we want this kind of relationship between the generations, then we need to be working towards creating it. Sort of the how you live your days is how you live your life kind of thing. If you you live your days without ever doing anything about this, then it's not going to be a part of your life or your child's life. Well, I mean, your poor parents um, have so much to be concerned about or to see as opportunities in their own relationships with their children. I think what we're saying, and it goes back to your earlier question, is that perhaps parents need to be thinking about this more explicitly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I will say in modern culture, we just had our two of our grandchildren move back to Cleveland. And we remember, we were raising our three daughters, how valuable it was to have a grandparent that was willing to just babysit for a few hours or babysit Mm -hmm. overnight or later on take a child to a museum or take a child on vacation. So there's an instrumental value uh, to grandparents that perhaps we're aware of, free babysitting. But the idea that it's also free life experience, you know, maybe we need to play around with what that really means and how to foster that. Yeah. And by the way, I, I do think museums are a great place for that. I do a lot of work with museums. They are the most natural intergenerational learning space we see because, you know, how many times do you see extended families or, or grandparents and, and kids going to a museum? So I, I've been trying to encourage museums to take a new attitude at enhancing the intergenerational learning. Because just because you have a grandparent taking a child there doesn't mean you've actually attended to creating learning experiences that would draw those two people together and give each one of them a meaningful experience from a different perspective that could be shared with the other person. So again, it's taking the opportunities explicitly and trying to work with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And we've talked a lot about positive relationships between people of different generations, but I want to kind of address the elephant in the room, and which is sort of that not everyone is lucky enough to have a positive relationship with their parents. And even the people who do have a positive relationship might be listening to this show because they're thinking, I love my parents, but I'm not going to parent my kids that same way. <laughs> and I don't know how to parent differently. And so I'm going to seek out information on how to parent. And so in some ways, it seems as though your school bypasses a lot of these problems because the interactions are between the elderly and the children who aren't related and the parent isn't in the interaction as much. And in previous generations, it would have been a lot more common for extended families to live close by and the grandparents probably provided a lot of childcare. But now that balance of power has really shifted and the parents can act as gatekeepers if they want to. And so I'm curious as to your thoughts about whether if parents don't have a great relationship with their own parents, should they encourage a relationship between grandparent and grandchild anyway? And what if your parents just have really different approaches to child rearing than you do? This is an interesting question because there is a tendency to be Pollyannish about some of these relationships and to, you know, go fully on your metaphor, you know, not only think of it as the white middle class or upper middle class family, but the one where the dynamics are good. As I said earlier, it's interesting as a grandparent to watch your children be parents because it is in some sense a measure of your success. Yes, there are lots of children who don't have great relationships with their parents. So what do I think about that? I think it's a new opportunity. I mean, I wouldn't shy away from it. I think you can learn about and perhaps improve your relationships with your own parents if you create a grandparenting situation that allows people to be individual and express their own views. If there are tensions to begin with, then I think a certain amount of honesty about you know the constraints around which uh, grandparenting should be allowed. I mean, in the following disciplinary sense, I mean there there's no point in grandparents undermining what the parents are trying to accomplish, but that creates an opportunity for sh sharing. But given that there are uh, situations, for example, with foster children or others, where there aren't adopted or biological grandparents, I think that's the message of our school. And you, you said it well yourself. Maybe we can create grandparenting in type relationships, grandchild, grandparent, in context where the parents are either not engaged or the, the social set is different. Mm -hmm. It's about mutual learning or mutual community service, which is not the general set of necessarily of grandparents and grandchildren in the context of family. Mm -hmm. So I, I absolutely agree with you. And I don't think it has to be an intergenerational public school. We're working with people that call them intergenerational contact zones. So whether it's a museum or whether it's a library, the idea that those programmatic spaces need to think deeply about how you create a space where people who are in a different phase of life can both gain and gain more because they're both in that space. Yeah. And I want to be really specific on the topic of mental illness, dementia, Alzheimer's. And I know that's a particular interest and specialty of yours. And I get that in the school, it can be valuable to both parties to have that interaction between the older person who's struggling with that issue and the younger person. And there's a lot of support around from people who are trained to, to encourage and support that interaction. But for a parent who is dealing with their own parents' kind of decline into these kind of diseases, I can imagine it must be very overwhelming to think, okay, how am I going to encourage a relationship between my child and my parent when my parent doesn't even recognize me half the time? Do you have specific advice for parents whose own parents are experiencing these kinds of things and maybe they want to encourage these kind of relationships and they just don't know how? I'm certainly willing to offer some thoughts. I would say that it's very personalized because it depends on where they are in whatever process and how much relationship they have with the child before and the quality of the relationship with the parents and the stress and the caregiving, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a, a clearly an advice where one-on-one -on -one conversation might be more helpful. That said, I think you go with where the person's strengths are. Often with people with memory problems, they, their long-term memories are quite intact. 
There are remarkable stories about the power of music being preserved. There are uh, photographs that can stimulate thoughts. Watching old films can do that. So what you need to do is to create a space where you tap into who that person is and as a human being and their strengths. Then I think you just you do have to kind of educate the kids about what memory loss means. The problem with uh, the way we view Alzheimer's and dementia is we medicalize them. Mm. So I have cared for thousands of people with memory problems and then wrote a book called The Myth of Alzheimer's. That sounds provocative, but basically all we were saying was Alzheimer's is not one thing. It's very heterogeneous. And to one degree or another, everybody, as they get older, has some memory and other cognitive challenges. So this relationship between normal aging and severe brain aging or Alzheimer's disease is, in fact, unresolved. So the notion that, you know, a kid might be told, your grandmother has Alzheimer's. She's got, you know, be careful she doesn't lash out at you or she thinks that people are out to, to hurt her and we don't want to have her. Yeah, In other words, if you focus on the fact that somebody's got a medical condition that is supposed to create fear in everybody and leads to bad behavior, how are you going to get around that? The, the idea that you say to the child, well, grandma is getting older, and as people get older, a lot of people develop some memory problems, and your grandmother's has gotten you know, quite to, the, to the, this point, so she can't remember this and that. You know, just relate to your grandmother the way you would and compensate for it like it was a hearing loss or something else. Uh, in other words, you keep the child to do the workaround. Actually, I think our kids who have a lot of contact with people with cognitive uh, challenges of different degrees do better with that. They can adapt perhaps better than the adults can. Mm, yeah, that's, <laughs> and they learn from it and they take it forward into their lives and, and maybe this will ultimately benefit how we all interact with each other. And when us parents get older, that things will be uh, improved for us. Well, and I, I, just to add on that, I know we're getting to the end of our time. So I work a lot with age-friendly communities, dementia-friendly communities. And what I say all the time is, look, let's not create an age-friendly community, a dementia-friendly community, a nature-friendly community. If we develop communities that are more open to human diversity and human challenges, mm -hmm. then the child with autism and the older adult with, with uh, dementia will be treated in a space that ends up being better for all of us. Yeah. The more we compartmentalize people and categorize them as sick or diseased, the more we're afraid of them, the, the more we create a community in which fear rather than care and compassion is the dominant theme. What a powerful note to end on. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. You are welcome. I enjoyed it. And thanks for your series. Thank you. As a reminder, all of the references for today's show can be found at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash intergenerational relationships. And while you're there, don't forget to go to yourparentingmojo.com forward slash survey to fill out the survey and be entered to win a 30 minute consult with me to address your most pressing parenting issue. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes and sign up for our mailing list at yourparentingmojo.com to receive a free gift. Seven relationship-based strategies to support your children's development while making parenting just a little bit easier on you. For more respectful, research-based parenting ideas to help kids thrive, we'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.